1: there's a reason that we're stuck in the particular ways that we're stuck those early ways of relating to another human become the things that we repeat in our current and future relationships why do all of us at our core not feel worthy I learned how to be in a relationship that was emotionally distant yet logically my mind would say I want connection it was so unfamiliar to be close to someone in that emotional way because my earliest environment wasn't close it was distant for me it was really just settling into what i was seeing about my own patterns how i was keeping partners away from me endings don't go away And we don't actually get to know what happens next. And the more we get comfortable living in that space, the more we're able then to let go of endings or beginnings or whatever the cycle of life that we're experiencing is.
0: Even before she came online as the holistic psychologist and gained almost 5 million followers on Instagram in just over three years, Dr. Nicole LaPera was a human fascinated with other humans. While she was working with her clients as a clinical psychologist, she began to see the limitations within the traditional mental health system, a system that she noticed tended to label symptoms as disorders. She was trained that all she could do to help the suffering of the people she worked with and herself was to manage those symptoms. This wasn't good enough for Nicole, so she decided to embark on a journey which led her into the virtual world. Her extensive research into trauma, epigenetics, and the importance of conscious awareness contradicted much of what she'd learned in school. Nicole began to see and believe that our diagnoses and symptoms don't have to be with us for life. Her book, How to Do the Work, spent five weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, and she's got two more on the way. Nicole's next book, which will be hitting the shelves in about two years, is all about how to cultivate what she calls heart based, authentically connected relationships. So I decided to ask her all about love, intimacy, and connection on today's episode. If in your life you've sabotaged relationships or found yourself stuck in cycles of abuse or disconnection, if you felt like you needed a partner to feel complete or whole, if you struggle with a need to control or micromanage the people you love, and finally, if the question, what do you need, leaves you with a blank stare and no clear answer because you've created a reality where you have no boundaries or space to find out what those needs even are, this episode is for you. So, if you're ready to break free from the dynamics you picked up in childhood that are keeping you from experiencing your own heart-based, authentically connected relationships, settle in, get comfy, and enjoy my conversation with Dr. Nicole LaPera.
2: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save ten percent on your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P. All this focus, focus is supposed to be
1: scientific.
0: You have entered back from the borderline, where we walk willingly into the darkness within our minds and return home to ourselves transformed. I'm your host, Molly. I spent most of my life numbing the pain and emptiness inside me unaware that my self-sabotaging behaviors and thoughts were destroying my ability to connect with myself and other people. One day, I decided I was sick enough of my own bullshit to hear life calling, telling me it was time for a change, and I decided to answer that call. On this podcast, We'll learn that when we see ourselves as the hero of our own journey it gives us the best chance at finding our inner truth and integrity together we'll learn to hold complex feelings expand our consciousness and self-awareness while making meaning of our suffering are you ready to find out who you are underneath the weight of everything that's been keeping you stuck If the answer is yes, follow me down the rabbit hole of psychological and spiritual growth. I'm so glad you're here. And with that, let's dive straight in to the episode. I am sitting here with Dr. Nicola Perra, and I am pretty excited about it even though I'm sure all my listeners will be familiar with who you are, I'd love to give you a chance to
1: introduce yourself. Absolutely. And first and foremost, Molly, thank you for carving out your time and your energy in the space to have this conversation with me today. I'm honored and excited to be connecting with you and your community. So a little bit about me. Um, Before I came online as the holistic psychologist, geez, I think it was three, three and a half years ago. Um, By training, I am a clinical psychologist. I was... As long as I can remember, the human fascinated with other humans. What makes people like me? What makes people dissimilar to myself? Um, really, a lot of curiosity around the mind, the brain. How does it work? So, before very long, I was marching my way to being a clinical psychologist to understand the mind and, and of course, to help people who were struggling with emotional or psychological issues. Flash forward in time on my own side of things. I guess I should share now personally. As long as I can remember. I lived uh, with a lot, a lot of anxiety. I was quite literally the little girl scared of the world, scared of bumps in the night, painfully shy, wouldn't talk to strangers on the street. There was a lot of anxiety in my household. So it it made a lot of sense that, of course, I was struggling in that way and never really got a hold of it. And like many of us, I think that have anxiety or have depression. um, And again, this is similarly to what I was taught in the field, there is this belief that you have that genetic, you know piece chip or you, you lack something internally. So of course, these are conditions that you'll you'll have more or less for life. Of course, we can talk about managing symptoms, but more or less, these are lifetime sentences. So on my personal side of things, I just chalked it up to, of course, my whole family is anxious. I'm an anxious human. I will always have anxiety. Flash forward. Several years now into a private practice that I opened in Philadelphia. I was offering what I called, or what was traditional talk based therapy, but with a mindfulness based approach. I thought that being present and being conscious was incredibly powerful agents of change. Though what I began to feel several years into the practice was not empowered, not main, not like I was helping my, my clients much at all. I was really starting to feel very disempowered because not only was I continuing to struggle in terms of my own anxiety, my own relationships, feeling really disconnected, having at this point achieved everything I thought I wanted to achieve in life and not really feeling fulfilled on a deeper level, And then seeing those same patterns in clients that I, by this point, had had come in week after week, year after year, incredible amounts of insight, awareness, even having a new plan of action for what is going to happen differently to break some of the cycles that aren't serving them. Yet again, the number one word that I kept hearing in my sessions and feeling myself was stuck. I'm stuck. This isn't working. I can't create change. Maybe something's wrong with me. I'm so powerless. And for me, it was really from that really depth of despair, disempowerment. I call it my dark night of the soul that sent me as sends many of us into the online virtual world. And for me, I was trying to educate myself, trying to understand what I could be doing differently, how I could be helping myself differently. And of course how I could help my clients differently. And the information that I came upon at that time was mind blowing. It really turned a lot of what I was learning in school on its head It really challenged this idea that these symptoms, these diagnoses are with us for life. I really learned about lifestyle interventions and epigenetics and even the ability to make change. And I set out then first on my own journey of holistic healing to change my life really from top to bottom. And that's what then inspired me to bring this message online, to create the holistic psychologist and to begin to just share my story you know, without any intention other than for me, that was important at that time, without any expectation, of course, of what the movement would grow into.
0: A beautiful introduction. For me, I picked up a mic eight months ago where I was just going, I want to figure out what's going on inside of me. And what resonated most with me in what you said was feeling stuck every psychiatrist office I visited told me I had some other different disorder. It was always different. I found myself on a cocktail of psychiatric drugs, right? And not saying that those things can't help sometimes, but I just knew that I kept feeling stuck. And the only message I was getting was, okay, let's increase your dose. Let's take this away and that. And I just thought to myself, finally, that little voice came through and said, you need to go on this journey. you know. And my whole podcast intro is all about the hero's journey, separation, initiation, and return. When I came across that stuff, that's what changed my life. And your account was really inspirational for me, mainly because I think that the concept that you talk about of self-healing gets so misconstrued from my perspective, because we don't hear in school about the journey. We don't hear about coping mechanisms and things that keep us stuck. We're all so bound by these roles. And I found myself in a relationship, right? They say, oh, you need to be by yourself until and heal before you get in a relationship. And all my questions for you today are around relationships because I've found what now I now know to be as like a kind of like a healing space in my relationship where I've come directly face to face with the things that have kept me stuck. And instead of running from them, I've finally like used them to kind of go on my hero's journey. And that's what I found in your post. I don't think you've ever done a a post about the hero's journey in particular, but that's what I felt from your message was someone who is going on that journey with it and finding her own way.
1: 100% Molly. And you know what I'm hearing, and I think a lot of us have been in that endless cycle of seeking treatment for the symptoms, right? Mm -hmm. I feel depressed. I feel anxious. There's my relationships aren't working. I have maybe these self-destructive patterns. Maybe I'm harming myself. I'm harming others in the world around me. And I want to stop. And traditionally, you know i think the the route most of us take and definitely the system takes is okay well let's try to mitigate minimize or end entirely these symptoms right let's change my mood let's kind of push or squash or suppress and i think the hero's journey begins when we understand that those symptoms you know not as problems to be avoided as very real and not to be minimized at all they can cause debilitating pain and hurt to ourselves and to our loved ones, and even to the natural world around us. However, they are what I call, and I think what a lot of us refer to them as is they're messengers, right? They have a meaning. There's a reason that we're stuck in the particular ways that we're stuck. And then where the concept of self-healing applies is shifting then that empowerment back to the self. So instead of I'm searching this external thing, this pill, this relationship, even, and again, not to say that guides, that therapists, that coaches aren't for many of us a incredibly important support on our journey, but again, it's for some of us that same model of I need something outside of me to make my symptom go away, essentially to make me feel better. So when we shift that again, and we empower ourselves, understanding that the symptoms that many, for many of us are, we're ashamed of them. We feel terribly, you know, about these cycles we're stuck in. However we can create enough space to understand that they were, as far as I see them, self-protective cycles. They came from somewhere and they can. I can empower myself then to create change. I don't need something external. I can begin first to look at the places that I'm stuck, at the things that aren't serving me. And then I can utilize new tools to actually empower myself to create that change and to maintain that change. Absolutely. You
0: know, I'm pretty open with the fact that I have BPD traits and I I suffer myself with um, BPD and CPTSD. Seeing myself through the lens of a diagnosis has not been helpful for me, but I do relate a lot with symptomology of what is known as borderline personality disorder. And what helped me most is when I came across the message of what you just said, which is these behaviors and these coping mechanisms that i was unconscious of for my whole life i just found myself to be someone that i i could see others be repelled away from me because i just found myself sucking them into this like emotional vortex people often see people with bpd as like these awful human beings but i was actually filled with so much shame and i was very aware of of the pain i was causing around me mm. but then when i woke up. I can only describe it as that, as like a a kind of an awakening, an aha moment. And I call it my, it was the, I am the problem moment. Saying that when I tell people that they're like, wow, that's so sad. And I said, no, because when I realized I was the problem, I realized I can solve this. And I saw first and foremost, for the first time that my behaviors were just things that used to protect me when I was a little girl. And they weren't protecting me anymore, you know. I was convinced I was this grown adult acting like a, a really hurt little kid, and your material was so instrumental it for me in in seeing that from like a zoomed out perspective and finally identifying with like my own loving
1: parent, you know. Mm-hmm. And I I believe or I know Molly that all we all have that that grown up that kid like part. Um, It carries our wounding from our past. And I really want to appreciate and acknowledge you so readily speaking about how painful it was to be on your side, right? To be in whatever state of reactivity or disconnection or whatever was happening for you in the moment, it's just as equally painful for that little child inside, even if it looks like Something outwardly different, right? I'm yelling, I'm screaming, I see I'm being mean, and these are all things that I have done in the past. I'm not even assigning that to anyone else outside of myself,
2: Mm -hmm. right?
1: Outwardly, it it doesn't look like pain often. Inwardly, you know, and I believe all of these coping mechanisms, even what we call our personality for most of us, if we're not conscious, the typical ways that we are thinking, our thoughts, our feeling, our navigating the world, for a lot of us that does come from an early painful place, from practices or habits that we learned in childhood that, to speak to your very beautifully made point, were the only ways that kept us safe in the relationship structures that we were born into, in the environments that we were born into. And then again, to speak to your very beautifully made point, we don't even realize that they're conditioned into us, they're conditioned thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, because That's all we've known. That's been who we've been for decades for most of us of time until we become aware or we teach ourselves how to become aware that all of that is actually living in our subconscious mind. They actually are conditioned habits. And over time, we can create space, meaning we can learn to consciously see those things and really what we mostly want to do. And then in real time, begin to make new choices, begin to become unstuck. From those patterns. And most of us are getting stuck in that abyss in the middle, right? We maybe know the things they don't serve us. We might even have a grand plan of action of how we're going to break those habits. Though, if when those moments in time come, if I'm in my autopilot, if I'm not, my body isn't regulated and I'm overly stressed and I can't access my conscious mind, I'm going to go right down to the right back to those old repetitive patterns, those habits that don't serve me. And I think that abyss for a lot of us is the really mucky place where we start to feel really terrible about ourselves, wondering why it's so hard to change.
0: Yes, and feeling broken too, you know, feeling mm-hmm. feeling like something is wrong with me. And to your point, as soon as I just thought I had that epiphany where I'm like this isn't me. This isn't who I am and I say in my podcast intro I wanted to find out who I was underneath all the stuff that was keeping me stuck, right? Like that was my goal. And this is the perfect pivot point into my questions that I had for you because all I wanted as as a person is like to be loved. I always wanted to find my perfect person. Ever since I was little, like even a little girl like I just knew like My life won't be complete until I find my partner, right? You know, that is something that was ingrained into me. I witnessed so much codependency in my parents' relationship. This is such a beautiful setup, what you talk about, these behaviors that are keeping us stuck. These very same behaviors were actually preventing me from experiencing true intimacy in relationships. I'd love to talk about emotional connection because one of your posts really spoke to me It's specifically about the confusing experience of being in a committed relationship, but then somehow still feeling alone and knowing that our partners love us, but somehow we're like wondering, do they even like me? And that's how I felt too. Is like, I felt like I know my partners love me, but I felt like this burden and like they didn't even like me. And that's such a confusing experience. And I wanted to ask you, why do you think so many people find themselves in this
1: situation? And what do you think causes that dynamic? So in childhood, going back in time, um, we all share a core universal need and you've spoken the need actually in what you were just sharing. And that need is to be loved. And here's why I'm calling that a core universal need, because as a human infant, we are one of the few, if not the only species or mammals that can't survive on its own. If a human infant were to be born without any caregivers around, that human infant sadly wouldn't survive. So love is our ability to have people show up and care for us. If we're cared about enough, someone might likely show up and meet our needs, feed us, put us to rest, burp us, you know, do all the things that human infants need, Keep, literally protect us, keep us safe. Without that connection to another, this is you might also hear this described when you hear humans being referred to as interpersonal species or wired to connect. All of this literally is wired into our neurology, into our brain and nervous system development. Meaning, again, we need some point of connectivity with someone else who can be attuned to our needs to keep meeting them consistently enough. And of course, this is where it varies in the environment we're born into, how consistent our caregivers were, how attuned were they? Were they able to show up in service of meeting our needs? And of course, we all have a range of experiences on that spectrum. So in childhood, because that need for love is universal and is so necessary for survival, we're also incredibly adaptive species. Meaning we will find our way to fit into whatever environment it is that we were born into with whatever humans that were around us and their own abilities or capabilities, right? To attune, to be connected to another, to serve someone else's needs, we'll adapt and we'll modify ourselves. And then because this period of time from actually birth until age seven, our brain, this might shock some people to hear even, our brain continues to develop into our 20s. So we're still in a developmental stage when we're born. And this is why I highlight this early period of time, especially birth to age seven, because our brain is open. It's receptive. We're in this wide-eyed state of literal learning. And what we're learning in those earliest months, years, becomes all of this programming that we're talking about. And because we're interpersonal and because relationships will continue to be at least a part of our life into adulthood those early ways of modifying our behavior, those early ways of relating to another human become the things that we repeat in our current and future relationships. So all of this goes back to the question being, right? What were my earliest environments like? How did I learn how to define connection, closeness, how much intimacy, how much attunement was in these earliest relationships? And if it wasn't there, Right. What we're going to continue to seek in partners is a similar experience to that early one that we've had. Even if logically, by now, we've taken in all of these messages right from our society. You complete me. There's this other person out there that, you know, is going to give you this thing that you're missing inside. So now we're hearing all of these messages. Of course, we're now accumulating all this relationship experience, learning things that don't work for us in our relationship. Yet that autopilot is so strong that will be what remains familiar. So if you've had some level of disconnection, I'll use myself as an example. There was not much emotional attunement in my family. I did not have emotionally supportive parents because they were honestly distracted with what was going on in my family, with health trauma, with a lot of worry, a lot of anxiety, and they weren't able to be emotionally supportive. So in some subconscious mind of mine, that's what I started to relate to. I learned how to be in a relationship that was emotionally distant, yet logically my mind would say, I want connection. I want this relationship everyone's talking about where we're deep and we're committed and we know each other and right, I feel differently, yet I continue to relate in my relationships just like I did in childhood, from a distance with my arm up, not really even meeting my partners at the depth I was looking for, yet logically not looking at myself as playing any role, assuming like most of us do that I must have just been picking the wrong person. So then out went that relationship and in came a new one looking for the right fit. Yet again, we're never going to feel the right fit because what we're actually relying on is the familiar of our past, which didn't meet our needs the way we want them to be met into adulthood. You kind of talked
0: a little bit about this even more in another post because you talk about how it's important for us to leave our ego consciousness. I realized too that so much of my my dynamic in relationships was like this desperate need to cling on, cling on and hold something that I that I I know deep down unconsciously I always thought would be repelled from me because I had this belief, right? That something was wrong with me and that I would somehow be found out, right? That every person I was I was with would somehow find out that I was deeply broken. So I found myself, just as you described, performing in relationships. And why? Because when I really sat down and looked at it, when I was young, I had a very similar experience to you where I had no emotional attunement in my family. On the outside white picket fence, you know, suburban life. Um, my parents were both teachers and I've had a lot of reparative. I'm lucky to have had a lot of reparative conversations with my mom and dad, and I love them deeply, but I can hold that dialectic, right. Of, of knowing what happened to me was developmentally, uh, damaging my, all of my basic needs were met. However, I remember very clearly, you know, my mom not being capable of soothing me and telling me everything was going to be okay, and witnessing my mom not protecting me from outbursts from my dad, and then getting like big displays of love from my dad, and then huge displays of disgust and anger. And then I saw, like, I remember as a little kid cleaning the whole house at like age 10 to like really be hoping that when my parents would come home, they would they would think that I was good, right? And so throughout my entire life, I realized, and it like you said, I've had multiple, multiple moments in my life where I've zoomed out and I've been like, oh shit, okay. And now it all makes sense in this picture where I'm just performing and I'm like clinging and performing so hard and then expecting my partner to be something that I want them to be. And it's like, where is vulnerability and authenticity in that there's no space in the performance for what's real.
1: Yeah, so when you when we bring up and think about um, ego, so mm-hmm. a simplified definition of ego, you know, cuz I think it's a concept that can be confusing, really simple the way I describe it is the ego is our self narrative, right? The story of us that we begin creating based on our experiences again from birth and beyond. And this is where it gets complicated. In childhood, again, before age seven, because of the developmental stage of our brain, because remember, it's still developing up until our 20s, we are only capable of understanding events and causes of events in a personalized manner. So for instance, right, when dad is, just to use your example, when dad is having an eruption, screaming and yelling, use my, myself as an example, when my mom was disconnected because she was in some worry cycle in her head, worrying about mm-hmm. something, and so therefore disconnected from the family, in those moments as a child, all we can experience is for you, dad's anger, for me, mom's disconnection. And the only meaning that we can assign and our brain will assign a meaning. All of our human brains do. We do it to make sense of the world around us and to do so as quickly as possible so that we can then determine if we need to do something next to keep ourselves safe. So all of our human brains are doing that again from birth on. The only narrative that as a child in that stage of development, we our brain will be able to assign is, I must have done something. Yes. Dad is yelling because I'm, I'm going to use what we mostly. I'm bad. I'm unworthy. Yeah. I'm not mm-hmm. lovable. My mom was not able to connect with me because of something inherent in me. Yes. That's why it's not surprising. I, would, I was like, why does everyone, when I talk to you know, all my clients, all my friends, if we're being honest and vulnerable, why do all of us at our core not feel worthy, not feel lovable? Why is this so universal? And again, it's because of these early moments in time. They don't have to be egregious. We don't have to be the victim as some of us are, unfortunately, of abuse, neglect, those extreme big T traumas. It's the consistency of these other moments where, again, our human brain is going to continue. What is a belief? A practice thought. The first time I assign the meaning of, oh, dad's yelling at me because I'm not not worthy. I'm bad in this moment. The more consistently I then practice that thought each and every time, probably dad yells for me, my mom disconnects. Now I have a belief in my mind. And then that belief actually doesn't leave or go anywhere. What that belief becomes then for us as we travel into our adulthood, it becomes a filter or a lens Mm. that we're applying over our current experiences, which is why, and the more we become conscious of the thoughts in our head and and the stories that we're telling ourselves, we'll, we'll all begin to see a very repetitive nature and usually some version of I'm not worthy. And if I'm applying that filter to the events that are happening around me, of course, I'm probably going to end up feeling the same way. And then I'm very likely to end up dealing with my feeling in that exact same way. The only way, again, that I learned how to do in childhood. So for some of us, it might be yelling, erupting ourselves when I don't feel worthy and making someone else feel just as unworthy. And for others, it might be that disconnection, that icing, that keeping myself safe from a distance. And that's why, again, it feels very childlike. And when we were sharing earlier, I said, we all have a little kid inside of us. And I disclose, I scream, I yell, I disconnect, I do childlike things still. And again, because that's that old coping tool that becomes active in that moment because that deep wound of not feeling worthy is there. And if we're not conscious enough, we're going to try to, keep ourselves safe by being at a distance by erupting by keeping the world away from us
0: yes i now am able to see that when i slip into those those behaviors my mom was also the most anxious person still that i think i know and i could see her you know like drift like like mm-hmm. you know when someone is is not there but they're there but they're mm-hmm. not there and as a child it's what you described and when i learned about I really became a super psychology nerd. And I realized like as a child, of course, it's easier for us to assign the blame to ourselves because the alternative reality is my parents are not capable of getting me through mm-hmm. my developmental milestones, which as a child is pretty effing terrifying. Right. And that's like equal to death as a child mind, right? And it's like, that's how we protect ourselves. Yes. Except yes. then the sad, tragic, it's like a Shakespeare novel. It's like a tragedy, right? Because ironically, the very things that protect us are what has been the biggest obstacle in my life to overcome. And now I see myself as this amalgamation of my mom's anxiety and my dad's anger. And when I see those things play out in my life, it's like a program has taken over my mind. And now I'm able, seeing it as like a computer program for me has helped because it helps me disidentify from it where I go, oh, the program has taken over. Like that's that's not me. And I immediately before I used, I'm sure you can relate to this, where like if I got into an anger episode, I would feel stupid to admit that like I wasn't in control of myself. So I double down on it and then tell my partner. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you know exactly what mm-hmm. I mean. And I'm smart too. So like I could actually make, I could actually, I was gaslighter professional, right? Like I could make anyone believe that they actually did something wrong. And in my, but then- what people don't know is that so many of us that do that, we go behind the scenes, and I would feel so much shame for what I did. And now I just openly tell my partner, I'm like, the program took over, like, and yeah. we have that, right? Like, I tell him where I'm just like, I'm so sorry, the program took over, that wasn't me. And immediately I see him. He said that that has like helped him so much. His inner child is calmed. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. we see each other in our relationship as two traumatized kids. And that allows us to have so much more empathy because Nicole, he opened up and told me that he felt emotionally abused by me. And that is what led us to have that conversation where we thought, how can we do this together? And that is how we came up with the thing of being like, I'm going to just tell you when my program's taking over.
1: Yeah. And you know know, what, again, Molly, what vulnerability there and being able to have that conversation with a partner to share that you know allowed and and to acknowledge the the compassion that we can expand into and you said that when you were describing your parents as well right you can have a conversation because at our core we're all humans meaning yes. those that raised us were raised by other humans and So if we can pull back and even look at our lineages, and for some of us, we know culturally, we know what was happening in time in general, right? From where of these decades before us that our ancestors came from. And there is even societal beliefs are changing for a very long time. There wasn't an awareness that humans had emotional needs, right? We did believe that we did best by our children if we kept them alive, because at at a very early time in history and our evolution, that was the core need was physical survival. And so again, understanding that we're all really limited by the tools that we have, by the awareness we have. And of course it doesn't make things that have happened to us or current relationships that you know are problematic. Okay. In any way, it's just a new awareness that we can expand into. And some of us can then hold space, for both of those realities for the pain that our parents limitations might have caused us for the pain that we're causing our partners in real time and also then hold space for the compassion um i actually had chills when you described you know mom and you being an amalgamation of mom's anxiety and dad's anger and you know uh uh, realizing how much that resonates and then i had a, a spark of a thought which is understanding that anxiety and anger at least in my perception are two sides of the same coin in a, in a sense right they're both yeah. very fear based um, yep. a disconnection from love when we're angry we're usually reacting to a hurt to an abandonment imagine or, or real right we don't even yet know it could come from our childhood and again it's it's very fear based so I see anger I see anxiety as the manifestation of, of fear which I see as the opposite of Connectedness and love, which I believe is the core of all of us interconnected interpersonal beings. So when you have that awareness, again, this doesn't mean if you have someone who's outwardly explosive and, you know, violating boundaries or or causing harm that Boundaries aren't a conversation that you can and should employ in those relationships. I'm talking about just expanding into this awareness of understanding because we can then offer that to ourselves in those moments where we're like, oh, my program came up. And, you know, I said and did things and I have many moments with my partners, Lolly and Jenna, where, you know, one or all of us were offline and you can almost tell in their eyes when in my eyes, yeah. when I'm not actually present and our commitment to each other is, at least for one of us, if we can, to remain present, to remain grounded, if even that means removing ourselves from whatever is activating one person or the system, because that's what it takes to restabilize. Sometimes having that one partner who can regain that sense of control or retain that sense of control, because Mm -hmm. it is like a cliff we go over. Once we get up and activate it to a certain degree, I call it the point of no return. It's going to be one less, one more thing And I probably am going to be likely to lose control. Yep. And you're right. And it's such like a downward
0: spiral from there. Zaz and I have talked about this exact thing. And it's so important too, to have conversations with your partners when you're regulated and like kind of prepare for these times because they are going to happen, right? Like it's inevitable that people are going to get activated. And we make like crisis plans when we're we're in calm states. And we're like, all it takes is for one of us to be to, to, to make the right decision because it's likely that one of us is going to be more activated than the other. One of us is going to be more likely to be spiraling. And I'm openly admitting that I'm a much more emotionally explosive person. It's like my biotemperament. It's who I am. I'm very emotional and he is not. He's much more logical. And so it kind of works out that he can kind of say, hey, remember the conversation that we had? Like, I think you're really at, you feel like you're really activated or he'll say like, I see the veil going over, mm-hmm. right? And, and he's like, are you feeling overwhelmed? That's like kind of our keyword because I've talked about this in other episodes of my podcast, Nicole, where I have a really hard time sometimes naming my emotions. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. all I know is that I'm not okay. And Zaz will say like, are you, is it happening? And I'm like, yes. And he goes, all right, like I'm here, you know, and just being attuned to our partners like that. I've never been in a relationship where that was the case. And it's a really scary situation to not know how you're
1: feeling. It's incredibly scary for, for both partners, Molly. And I want to highlight a couple things, which is one, this idea of preventative conversations. And, you know, I think unfortunately most of us, myself included historically, at least have wait it until in the moment, right. Until we need to, or we, we have no choice, but to, because mm-hmm. again, for a lot of us conflict, these conversations, they're difficult to have being vulnerable, talking about these things. We really wait until it explodes out of us. So yeah. having these conversations when our nervous system is regulated, like you're offering is incredibly, incredibly important because our nervous system can get activated ours or our partner's at any time right yeah. so we have a, a process in our in our brain it's called neuroception and really what that means is we're constantly aware we're aware of the environment around us our energy is always Kind of outwardly sensing the energies of whatever space we're in with whatever others we're in. So sometimes it's a thought that can trigger a deeper emotional wound and activation. Sometimes it's a disturbance in the energy around us, you know, and we don't always know when or how it'll come. And the reason why. Most of us struggle in that state to label emotions, to know what we're feeling. I often do suggest if you don't know, just saying, I don't know, I'm having a reaction of some sort. It's because when we're in that more emotional brain, um, we actually lose access to logic, to thinking, at least clearly to future-based planning, which can take into account past consequences our brain actually, all of that lives in a part of our brain called the prefrontal cortex. That's not online anymore. We actually, that's why we can't think, we can't make sense of things. We do not know that, or we're not reminded in that moment that, you know what, screaming, yelling actually doesn't get me the consequence I want. And again, it's because very much neurologically, we don't have access to that ability to think in those moments. So the more we're in that activated brain, and again, this can be a point of shame for some of us, and I'm offering a gentle suggestion or a reframe here, we might not know ever really what we're feeling because we haven't spent much time consciously, safely observing our emotions and how they feel in our body because we do escalate to that emotional place where we then lose the ability to give it words, to give it language. And then I would go as far to say that becomes even more, before it becomes shameful, before we're like, oh my God, I'm an adult and I don't know what I think and feel. And here is me having to realize that as being a clinical psychologist, right? Before we're even shameful there, we 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 are engaged, we we do things right that that don't serve us. We feel badly in that moment and then we feel worse because we can't use our words to tell our partner what we're feeling. And to, and as a human who doesn't have access to our part of our brain that allows us to communicate, it is even more problematic.
0: Yes. It's it's so interesting that you brought this up. Like We're naturally kind of veering into some of the questions that I had written down I love because it. one of the things that you spoke about on Instagram was family pattern awareness, right? And part of the post that you said was many times in relationship conflict, we're having big reactions that come from childhood trauma, not from the present moment. That concept has been really powerful me, for me too, right? Because it's just like, I'm a person that always wants to assign meaning something right to, to something. And I'm like, I want to know exactly how I'm feeling and I want to know why. And I want to be able to like assign, but mm-hmm. so much of what you say is like, you know, sometimes we don't have to have a reason. We don't have to have name the feeling. It's like, you just need to kind of be in the moment. And for those of us that grew up with a lot of anxiety and kind of having to constantly manage everything not being able to assign a reason or having like is a,
1: such a struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We don't as human creatures tolerate uncertainty or the unknown. Well, so as much as I can give the suggestion to live into that, I don't know, that's incredibly <laughs> uncomfortable for our subconscious mind because our subconscious, all of these habits and patterns where they live that we've been talking about has one goal and that's to continue to survive in, into the next moment. So to anticipate, to assign a meaning allows us to feel more in control, even if it's the meaning I always assign, because now I can predict what happens next. So even if it, again, comes with all of the te- terrible consequences that I want to avoid, I've been through those before. I know I'm, I'm okay more or less on the other side of them. Living into that I don't know activates that uncertainty um, mm-hmm. and challenges. It feels like a threat to our subconscious mind. So we'd rather know
2: post your free job on linkedin.com/people today.
3: Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard
1: fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: This is such a again perfect segue because the next question I had for you is about control. That I've identified as like my, sometimes I call it like my Bowser, my big Bowser boss of recovery that I'm currently tackling. Like I always think that like I'm doing well and then I, and then, you know, my hero's journey brings me up to the next like Mm -hmm. boss (laughs) and control is like the big boss that I'm facing now. And, you know, even though I know my partner is a grown ass human being, I often find myself compelled to give him unsolicited advice rather than just listening and being there for him and before i was unconscious of these behaviors but once i was more aware i saw how much of an issue non-interference was for me and you talk about non-interference i just wanted to ask you like why do you think some of us find it so hard to treat our partners like i said a grown ass
1: man but yeah. another more professional voice <laughs> an autonomous adult <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's incredibly difficult. I think as humans, whenever we see or hear or experience someone challenged suffering, right. In whatever way it is, our partner comes home, you know, with a bad day talking to us about the colleague at work, it's really instinctual, right. Because hearing someone else's pain or experiencing it, seeing it on their face, feeling it in their energy, is, is it's upsetting to us. If we love someone, we of course don't want to see them in pain. And many of us, you know, have the ability to, to feel, to sense, to empathize. That's what that is. And when we're activated, then now it becomes much more compounded for us, right? Because we hear and see their upset. We then feel whatever type of way we do about feeling our own upset at their upset. And again, if we're someone who doesn't tolerate or know how to navigate our emotions, for some of us, the best path to feeling better, the quickest path to feeling better is solving the problem, right? Because I don't have to feel helpless anymore. If I take away whatever's upsetting you, I tell you how to deal with the colleague or what to do in your career. Now you feel better and I get to feel better. So it's kind of like our backhanded way at managing or self-regulating how we feel about what someone else is going through. And of course, like I said, there's a very natural tendency that when those we love and care about are suffering in some way, most of us you know, have some sort of reaction. And then that control, that suggestion, that micromanaging, whatever it looks like for all of you listening out there is oftentimes our, our self-regulation, our, our attempt to feel better, delete the problem. And now the yeah. whole system can feel better. So what what the goal would be is to just hold space, to tolerate that our partner's having a, a difficulty with work or maybe they're in a confusing place in their career and they don't yet know what the next step in their journey is. And I can just hold space for that, meaning I can hear about that. I can be available, should I be approached or my partner ask me to offer some version of support in those moments. Um, otherwise, you know my goal is just to keep the space safe so that I can continue to hear about what's going on in my partner's life.
0: Yes. And what came up for me when you said that is back when, and I still do this. Sometimes I'll slip into advice giving and I ca- I'm i better at catching myself now, but I realized that I'm really uncomfortable with silence. And I've always been very uncomfortable with silence since I was a little girl. It's like you talked about being an anxious kind of, I talk in one of my episodes about emptiness and like this kind of like internal empty void. And that was one of the symptoms of BPD when some things with BPD I identify with and some I don't, which is normal, right? Because like everyone experiences, it's, it's human. We're all people. We're not just one little diagnostic box, but the chronic feelings of emptiness, I was like, ding dong, because that, that I felt that. And ever since I was a little kid, I struggled with existential thoughts. Like, what was I before I was born? That actually kind of scared me more than death. Like, what five-year-old little kid is like going to their parent and being like, mom, what was I before I was born? Death is forever. Forever feels so scary. And Mm -hmm. I can tell you what, those thoughts did not go down well with my parents. They were like, why are you thinking about that? Don't think about that. I spent so many nights, Nicole, terrified by my own thoughts, by those big, huge existential questions. And the people that were supposed to fix things for me, my parents kind of just told me, don't think about that. And to me, I thought, how can I not think about that I'm going to die and that that you all are kind of doing this like little dance to me that I'm like, and why are you all doing this if we're all just going to die and you can't give me these answers? And I call that like spiritual starvation, right? Because I had no one to guide me through those feelings. And I just like, when I could kind of identify that is I realized that uncomfortability with silence, that uncomfortability of just being and trusting that I was like this fabric of something bigger, how wild that just that
1: can affect me just being able to be there with my partner. I'm having a full body reaction hearing you describe all that, Molly, because it's so in resonance with, I can actually feel, I used to get the feeling that void in my my chest.
0: Um, And it was almost how you're saying that I'm literally like going like when I used to think like forever, ever, ever, ever when I was, and I used to go like, yep, spin it in my
1: mind. And then it would feel like it was crashing down on me. And of course I was doing this completely in private because by that point I had heard people die. We had health issues mm-hmm. in my family, my sister. Um, I came to find out that I was probably about, cause I have very few memories of my childhood. I was probably about three years old when she had a pretty extensive surgery, um, to put two metal rods in her back. she had have her mm-hmm. throat reconstructed. And I know how, um, my, my mom's, you know, her own existential anxiety. My sister has micro memories of knowing mom was scared. So for me, you know, I had seen, And I had had the concept of death. And because Mm -hmm. it was so alive in my house, I definitely didn't feel comfortable saying, Mom and Dad, I'm scared about dying. Let's talk about you dying. So I kept all of this inside very much, didn't have any point of connection, any point of help with navigating these big ideas. And as children, just want to offer this for anyone listening who has children or is around children. They see. Children are attuned beings. They're actually, in my opinion, still much more connected to their their soul, their spirit, whatever we want to call that inner essence. Um, Mm. They're yet to be fully conditioned out of that, that knowing. So a lot of children are really knowing what's happening in the family, even if there's a dance telling them otherwise. A lot of children are having awarenesses about life, about death, about big ideas even if they're not talking to you about it. Um and again, when we have that aloneness, that's unfortunately what a lot of us replicate in our adulthood. Cuz even if we want differently. I want a deeper connection. I don't want to feel so alone in the world. This is all I would profess, you know, verbally, logically to really anyone who wanted to listen. Yet at my core, it was so unfamiliar to be close mm. to someone in that emotional way because my earliest environment wasn't close. It was distant. So I kept repeat re- replicating that. I often use this illustration where I have my hand up and I'm telling my, my partner to hug me, right. Mm-hmm. And why aren't you hugging me? why don't I feel your hug? But really, I, I've created all of this distance between me and you, because that's yes. the distance that I was used to. You and I were used to dealing with these big feelings alone. So now it does feel very vulnerable, very raw, and very mm-hmm. unfamiliar to begin to express these parts of ourself to current partners, friends, or whomever.
0: Yes. And it's so true because when you're little, right? And you're, you're so scared to share those feelings with the people that all you have is your family when you're little. And if I was told like, what is, I, I told my older sister, I had an older sister that was nine years older than me and my parents and all of them, when I expressed these scary feelings, they were like, the reaction was so visceral. Like, why are you thinking about that? Do not think about that. And I could see their fear. And I thought, well, I'm screwed because then I must be the only, cause I asked, do you think about that? I remember so, so clearly asking mm-hmm. my sister and she was like, no, why are you thinking about that? And I thought, well, that was like the sign seal delivered yeah. moment where I was like, something is wrong with me. I'm the only one that thinks about this stuff. I think that I internalized that fear of death so much. And I had no spiritual guide in my life at that time that every time I became close to someone, it's like, I think that I kind of was like subconsciously scared that I would lose them too. So it was like, you're all, we're all going to die. So why would I want to bring you close? Cause I know that I'm going to have to face one day that feeling of losing you
1: so much fear, fear thoughts there. Yeah. And, you know, that's the thing The the other side of fear and that vulnerable connection of love is, does feel risky. It does feel like yes. there is part of us that we then mourn if, and when the relationship ends or the person dies or, or whatever it is that, that happens to us. And again, mm-hmm. it doesn't make those feelings any less valid, Um, it's part of the journey of being human, of of endings, of, you know, being in relationships that don't, you know, fully last for whatever reason. And kind of going even back full circle, I, I do think there's a lot of messages that many of us get culturally in society at large through Disney movies, right. That do kind of prioritize or, or label the longevity of a relationship as a marker of, uh, you know, its health or its fulfillment. And a lot of people are in very long time relationships that are continuing to play the earliest roles that they first inhabited and aren't really fully self-expressed, aren't really authentic, aren't really, you know, in a, in the depth of connection that they mm-hmm. want, though their relationship has tenure, if you will. Um, and I think, you know, endings and life and cycles, and I learn a lot from nature, you know, every year as esoteric as this might sound every year, you know, we go through cycles of life, yes. uh, uh, you know, uh, plants live, they grow, they blossom, they bloom, and then they they die and then they yes. grow again, you know. And in that my this podcast is- intro, I say life is a circle, right? Like it's I a cycle. That. I resonate so much
0: yes. with like paganism stuff of like the spiral and everything. And like that that was comforting for me because I always saw things as so linear. Yes. And now yes. that I see things as a circle, as you're describing, like what a comforting feeling. Right. And I apologize
1: for interrupting you. No, that just made- I-
0: so like excited i love
1: i love that and that's true right without death mm-hmm. you can't have that rebirth yes um and again and i we think we die so. in many other
0: ways right there right. are many deaths in our life like i am not the same person as i was 5
1: years ago and i'm our cells regenerate like i'm just that's, getting
0: so excited i think
1: it. i love that i think that that is what healing is it's yeah. having and living consciously to all of those different death deaths of the self of ways of being of thoughts of emotions of relationships mm. i do think life is a cycle of beginnings and endings. And if we can get comfortable and reframe then the way we experience the endings and learn ultimately, again, all this comes full circle, learn how to be connected to ourselves, learning trust in ourselves, navigating that unknown, not having to know what comes next and be trusting that I can find my way through whatever that is that comes next. Even if what comes next is a loss at some sort over time, gaining the resilience or the confidence, which comes from having moments of difficulty, having moments Mm -hmm. of stress that you are able to calmly regulate yourself back into that safe space and staying connected to that intuition. So endings don't go away and we don't actually get to know what happens next. Even if our mind likes to fill in and create the anticipated meaning of what will happen next. And the more we get comfortable living in that space, um, by showing up for ourselves, by being developing that confidence that we can navigate whatever it is that comes, the more we're able then to let go of endings or beginnings or whatever the cycle of life that we're experiencing is. A post that you
0: wrote said, we're conditioned to believe we should celebrate the end of toxic relationships and feel better off. And you said, the truth is we also feel grief. We need to feel grief and we need to mourn them. And that hit me so hard and what we're saying because it's in society, right? Like, good for you, dump that asshole, yeah. like, move on, you know? Like, yeah, girl, good for you, like, get rid of that nar- toxic narcissist, right? Like, it's always, and I was the queen of like all my exes were toxic, right? Like, lots <laughs> of them. if it was like old Molly was talking, like, everyone was a narcissist. <laughs> but, um, And my first marriage, you know, I I got married when I was pretty young and my first marriage ended with infidelity. He cheated on me three three months after we got married. And now if I'm taking an honest look back on that, was I the perfect partner? Absolutely not. Right. But I stuffed those feelings and I got so mad and said, screw this. I'm moving on. I jumped straight into new relationships, which then, you know, things played back, played back, played back. And now what you said in that post i needed to grieve you know i needed to reflect i needed to also thank him for what he did the growth that we had because we were young you know we we learned so much from each other and i'm so grateful to to him now for like the things that we went through and i think if more of us took that belief of like taking that time to grieve and thank for what we think, thank the person for what they gave us. Even, even if the lessons we learned and you, you talked about, you had your own first marriage and, um, how did you, did you grieve those? Or, or if you didn't take the time to grieve those, what was the impact
1: that that had on you just moving on? Yeah. I think, you know, whatever it is that is ending um, we, you know, making space for how we feel about that ending is incredibly important. Um, Mm -hmm. And for me making the choice to, to leave my first marriage was uh, really one of the first, maybe the second or third time in my, my adult life that I can remember that I put and actualized a decision based on my needs. And what I mean Mm -hmm. when I say that is as the relationship we had met each other in New York City and then we relocated to Philadelphia um several years into our relationship once we had already been we were already married. Um, and that first year in Philadelphia kind of restabilizing, having moved a city and trying to set down new roots really for me became a reflective time um, highlighting, you know, kind of how I was feeling about the relationship. I was in a period of really intense self-discovery. I was in a psychoanalytic program, trained to become a psychoanalyst, Freud with a couch. Um, so cool. <laughs> and part of that program was being in my own Um, Sometimes up to two times a week, therapy, laying on the couch, being in group therapy and really beginning to look at myself and my patterning. And through all of that exploration, I was really coming to the awareness and beginning to first question and get curious about how was I experiencing this marriage that I'm in? And Mm. after a bit coming to the realization that there were certain things and having then having attempted to have conversations and having had conversations with my partner at that time. There were things that weren't fulfilling me. Um, And so I say all that to say, it took me a very long time to make the decision to actually directly, uh, you know, kind of ask for that relationship to end Mm -hmm. instead of indirectly just allowing my resentment that I felt at that point, my frustration, everything to leak out. It took me a while to directly, you know, come and indicate that to my partner that I was, you know, interested in that relationship ending um, and then began, you know, grieving all of what, what that meant. Um, it, the grief was there a little bit beneath the surface as I was coming to the awareness that I needed to have that conversation before I actually had it. So I was making space for myself about all of then what that meant for me. You know, for me, it meant uh, less that I have a, a reaction to ending a marriage, which I know for some people does carry a meaning. I was a little more comfortable with, you know, acknowledging that that's what this would mean if I ended this relationship. For me, it was really just settling into what it meant for me to be in that relationship, what I was seeing about my own patterns, how I was keeping partners away from me. And now that this meant that I was embarking on a new journey without a partner and very similar to you, silence, aloneness, None of that was a comfortable space for me, yet at that point, I did know that that was a necessary space, step and space I needed to create for myself to begin to figure out um, what I was doing, how I was continuing to replicate these patterns, because I did have in mind a different type of relationship that I wanted to be in. And I was beginning to acknowledge that with my grief meant self-awareness, me acknowledging that Yes, I'm losing this person in this relationship, yet I'm left with me and I still now need to go into a new relationship space differently. Um, and that was what was different, I think, in the grieving or the ending of my marriage versus having ended past relationships. Because prior to my, my marriage ending, I relationships ended by myself, by other partners, and I would immediately on to the next because by that point in my life or up until that point in my life, it was all their problem they were not the right partner. So out you go. And now I'm open for a new partner. So ending my marriage saying all that to say was the first time that I was starting to gain awareness that I was part of the equation, um, which meant that now I'm grieving. And I'm also grieving that part of myself that I was beginning to realize I had to change.
0: Oh, I have to admit when my partner cheated on me, I was like, Oh, well, this is easy because I can tell everyone it's his fault. I now go into things like and I have the the view in my relationship like I'm 50% of every partnership that I'm in. I have to show up in a way like I affect my relationship dynamic. It's my relationships are not something that are happening to me. And that's kind of how I felt before. Like people and life were just happening to me. I wasn't consciously creating my reality whatsoever. And I know you're big on like the concept of of conscious creation. And again, not something we learn in school is it but wouldn't that be so freaking nice if if kids learned about how we are consciously creating our reality and you talk about you know how you started to meet your own needs and place boundaries and i don't think that a lot of us are are taught how important it is i mean for me when my first therapist said well what do you need i met her with like the most like blank terrified <laughs> face and how, how scary is it? And and anyone that is out there that can relate to that. And someone's asked you, what do you need? And you can't say it. That's a really shitty feeling to feel.
1: I I giggled when you said that, Molly, because I'm starting to really think we've lived parallel lives. Yeah, uh, for real. That's why Lolly was telling us That's why Lolly pushed for us to have this conversation. I I mean, in all seriousness, I had that same conversation for me. It was with a friend. I was going Mm -hmm. on and on. I was feeling torn in a million different directions around obligations, family, partners, friends, all of these things that I thought people wanted of me. And
3: Mm -hmm. my friend
1: very calmly looked at me after very patiently, as she always had done, (laughs) listen to me, you know, tell her, dump on her, all of the stress, Mm -hmm. all of these directions, I was being pulled out looking for advice. And Mm -hmm. her advice was a very similar question right back. Well, what do you want to do for about whatever event or non-event we were talking about? And I was dumbfounded. My jaw might as well have hit the table. I did not even realize how, not only did I not know, I didn't realize how very infrequently, and I might even say, if I ever stopped and asked, this person now is asking me something that Jesus, I don't even know when the last time I even asked myself to give myself an opportunity to feel into knowing the answer, because I was starting to realize, like, I never stop. My filter is always, how will this affect the world around me, the people around me, my thoughts, Mm -hmm. my feelings, whatever it is, my choice, what I'm going to do or not do. Mm -hmm. Before I even I would jump over, what do I want into, what do they want?
0: (laughs) Isn't it? Especially like if we're this, we're very similar, I can tell where it's like I was good at knowing what people needed. Like, or I actually I don't know about that anymore, but I thought I was. And because we cannot know what other people need, but I thought I was good at it, and it was much easier. I was constantly reading what everyone needed. Like I'm really good at absorbing other energy and reading, reading the room. It's easier to do that than to tune in. How now in your current relationship, which I'd love to explore a little bit about the dynamic that you have right now, but how do you know what you need now? What do you need? Like now as like someone who's really on their own hero's journey and you feel like you've kind of worked through some of this stuff, what does knowing
1: what Nicole needs look like now? It's still like much of a journey. Um, I don't, you know, our needs, I think I just want to highlight this. Are, are changing. Mm-hmm. We don't have static needs that once we check That's the such three boxes, <laughs> you know, like, oh, oh done for today and met all <laughs> my needs. Our needs change. Our bodies change in terms of what nutrients they need, how much nutrients they need, how much sleep do we need, or how much sleep are we getting. We really do emotionally, different things happen and disturb us and diff- cause disturbances in our emotional world. Our needs change each and every day. So, my journey to figuring out once I had that very stark realization that I don't know what I need, I never make space to know. That's the first step, making space to know. First, becoming aware that you maybe are like me and you, Molly, and maybe other people are resonating with this. Yeah, I'm always worrying about other people. That's a huge first awareness to have. Your autopilot. And I want to acknowledge this autopilot as well, because this tendency to be hyper vigilant, to be so attuned to the, the degree that we almost think we do know what people need. And maybe we're right, maybe we're not. Mm -hmm. That too is a safety mechanism. Because those of us who had explosive parents or who had detached parents, we were so attuned to how to keep that environment as safe as possible, that looking outward was our way. So if we could just avoid the thing that would activate that, or when mom was in a good mood or slightly more available to us, right? If we could capitalize on that and avoid the things that make mom feel disconnected, that attunement served us at one time. And then we carry that into adulthood. And for a lot of us, it looks like knowing or over or anticipating someone else's needs before our own. So before we can know, and this is for all of us, regardless of how old you are, because I know we put pressure on ourselves. I'm 30, I'm 40, I'm 50. I should know what I need. Mm -hmm. If you've never hit pause to ask yourself consistently and to explore what those deeper needs are, you're not going to know right away. So we need to then become curious. So what that curiosity Mm -hmm. led me to was beginning to use boundaries, beginning to create space in some of my most longstanding relationships with some of my immediate family in particular, hitting pause, not being so available, not allowing the stress or the you know medical or health incident that's happening over here and the way they're navigating it become so quickly the way in the cycle that I get stuck in. So after years of doing that and then having met Lolly in that time and both of us then joining together and being on this journey of healing, really aware consciously of the type of relationship we wanted and you know, the connection that we were both cultivating to ourselves and to each other. Right Over time, I began to feel my way into what my needs are, yet I'm still actively present to myself each and every yes. day, Right, taking that moment to hit pause and to check in. Now that I have two partners who have their own sets of needs, thoughts, feelings, reactions, experiences, trauma Mm -hmm. that they bring into the present moment, right? I have a lot of opportunity to be worrying again about the world around me. And the work for me still is to hit pause, to remain connected to myself, to understand that if I'm not, again, like we were talking about earlier, that Mm -hmm. stable person, if I don't have ability to access my own conscious mind, I'm going to create the same past that I've brought into past relationships, just because I'm in a new relationship and it's consistently looks very different than my past ones. Doesn't mean that we all don't still have that deeper wounding that is right around the corner. And we don't still have those moments of pure activation where the past comes washing back in. Um, And there are still moments where I'm not fully sure what I'm feeling, what activated it and what I need it. I just now have more tools and more awareness To continue to practice navigating those moments differently and have two humans that I've surrounded myself that are committed to the same. So we then all become Mm. able to hold compassionate space to hold limits and boundaries if, you know, there's reactivity alive that's making one of us feel unsafe then to compassionately understand and seek to have a conversation about what happened and then what can happen differently moving forward. And that's why I said, it's a journey it's ongoing and it's staying connected to the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm almost 40. Now I have no idea what life in my forties will feel like no idea what life in my fifties, sixties, will my needs change? Probably. Will I change as a being? Hopefully. So that's what (laughs) I mean when I say like, A lot of us do look for this prescription where we can write it in our planner and repeat it from now into this infinite future and be like, I'm healthy and done and meeting my needs. Again, this is that space of uncertainty. We don't know yet. None of us have aged beyond the age we are right now. We don't actually know what tomorrow will feel like. Again, just
0: like there's like I could ask like 70 different questions based upon <laughs> everything you say. What come up? For, what came up for me, and what I want my listeners to really take from what you just said is so much. But for what what really popped out for me was you describing as healing is never done. The whole concept. I know that you face backlash around the concept of self healing and healing, and it's like what I I take from your message for me personally, and what has been so helpful for me is that. Healing is never finished. Things like CBT or some of these like more evidence-based approaches, right? They're like, okay, in X amount of sessions, you will be better and blah, 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 right? Like, And everyone wants to be like, when am I better? When am I going to be done? When am I going to be healed? And what I love about what you say in self-healers is you don't ever say anything about the process ever being finished. That is it right there the process is never done our needs are constantly changing if we are chasing a finish line that's where we lose it all the moment that i released the concept of being cured or normal that's when i felt
1: free i'm smiling really big Molly mm-hmm. cuz done finish mm-hmm. lines checking yeah. boxes is a little overachiever in me who kept myself Same. safe through doing Same. <laughs> loved to seek
0: that me too. done
1: What do I I need to do to be healed? Nicole, I call it my hippie hammock in the sky where I can just (laughs) lay on it, not do a damn thing. And I'm just in this nirvana, this healed place. And yeah, again, and there are moments still. I I notice it when I have deadlines. I'm working on two new book projects, actually, one of which is on relationships. So perfect timing.
0: Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm.
1: In terms of with deadlines, I notice that done, that overachiever, that anxiety that I feel when I'm not yet completed that deadline. And I know it's coming in three or six weeks or whatever it is, mm-hmm. is really anxiety provoking for me. So when you talk about a process, it's, it's all of those moments, knowing, becoming aware that, you know, I do like to, to be done, to be completed. The, the idea being that I get to feel differently or something will, will shift or change. And For a lot of us, it's learning how to live in the process of life, how to be about something that is ever-changing, that like we were saying, does have beginnings and endings and cycles and evolution. And the more confident that I can and trusting that I can get in myself, the more than I can be opened to whatever it is that is happening in the moment. But yeah, done. I, I have not found, mm-hmm. found done. So I always you know, ask anyone listening, if anyone's found this nirvana uh-huh. uh, utopia, yeah, of the me havoc of done this. Um, I'd love to see it. But again, I think this comes down to, we like to do a lot of us to distract Right. Mm -hmm. With this idea, this fantasy that things will look or feel or be different. Um, And the more we can embrace the being of life and being present to life as it is in this moment, and the more we're going to empower ourselves to be able to then navigate that moment as we want to.
0: Absolutely, and my long-term listeners are going to be like Molly. Can you please stop saying this same thing? But I'm going to have a yes. bunch of listeners or from your your community listening to this. And you know, Nicole, something that's always fascinated me, me is you know our country in our Declaration of Independence. It says like the pursuit of happiness, right? Which is when you've achieved happiness, it just kind of like even our country is like based upon like you need to get to this finish line, right? And mm-hmm. so. I just want people to offer themselves so much compassion because you've been fed just the wrong narrative in from, from everywhere. Your parents have been fed these narratives. Like we just have to give ourselves the compassion to start absorbing in this, this new narrative, which is the process is never done. And it's also, it's all about self-awareness. If you are aware of what's all we can control is ourselves and our reactions, and then also see other people for me, seeing other people as this, as just little traumatized kids in some part of them, of course, there's this like powerful adult in them as well, but all of us have these same toxic narratives in our mind that we're fighting against. And that's really helped me be so much more compassionate in my relationships with other people.
1: Yeah, It's one of the big reasons. Um, So back to me making even the decision to go online.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, By
1: that point, I was really aware of how much I filtered, like I was sharing my truth, Mm -hmm. my thoughts, my ideas through how this would be for someone else. Um, So for me, the exercise in creating an account without any expectation of what the account would grow to was, was a commitment to beginning to speak this new truth of holistic wellness and the things that I was dealing with and, you know, the progress that I, I was making and, and doing so, you know, to share my story began my journey of living into into what that that truth is. And, and I do it and I continue to do it now because I did see how quickly and universally resonating that truth was. And I did know then for me, hearing other people relating, understanding wherever they were living in the world on somewhat of a similar journey helped me to feel less alone in my own journey because I know from that little place of worthlessness and unlovability that most of us do have deep inside. We also entertain a a belief that no one else feels that way. So Mm -hmm. it's in other humans like yourself, you know, having podcasts, sharing their stories. And of course not everyone has to do so publicly. I always acknowledge the ripples that we cause when we just live into our truth in our, in our private lives, whatever that looks like for us, but this is how we do it by creating the space to figure out what it is that we think, what do we want? What do we need? What are we feeling? What is our journey? And then as we live into that in the world, we all get to feel less alone. We all get to feel more connected. We all get to essentially fill in that deep hole that so many of us felt from such an early time. My
0: last question for you is something that I think it's a perfect way to end because you've already kind of like let slip that you're working on a new book all about relationships. And I want to talk to you. I want to give you a chance to just kind of tell the listeners what the what's the scope of that book and what what is your I work in software, that's my nine to five. And I like to always say to my clients, like, what's your desired outcome? Cause that's a beautiful question to ask people, right? Is like, what is what's the why of that book? But I think it's such a an amazing thing because in August, you made a post announcing to the world that you were in a multi-person relationship, right? And you call it like a throuple and you've made reference to it. And before we talk about your book, I just want to give you the floor to just say, what has the experience of being in this multi-person
1: relationship, what has that taught you about love and connection? No, they the lessons that I continue to learn are are endless. Mm. Um, for me, it's it's taught me how expansive love can be. It's allowing me to live, live into a belief that I, I think I always had to some extent, which is in the heart's ability to love to love mm. multiple people to love multiple experiences, and then to allow and be in receipt of love from from multiple people. Um, of course, in Practice. there are still many lessons for me yeah. for me to learn in navigating a relationship with two humans on both sides, giving and receiving. Um, For me, I I continue to see, again, all of this connects to what we've been talking about. A real real deep vulnerability around that emotional connection because it's unfamiliar. It's not one I've had. And now I have two people willing to Mm -hmm. give love to me. And that does, as counterintuitive as this might sound, often for me end up feeling very threatening, very unsafe. And I see myself engaging in the same distancing, same reactive to keep people Mm -hmm. away my partners away behaviors. Um, So it's a can consistent opportunity to learn about myself, about how I navigate relationships and about in giving, gifting me opportunities to continue to, to show up differently and doing so for all of us. And in terms of the book, um, I'm of course, the book is not about a thruple relationship in oh, particular, <laughs> however. Um, you maybe know, one le- day. Maybe one day, conscious relationships <laughs> leaving, um, coming off of where how to do the work ended. I think the biggest kind of piece that the next step of the journey for most people is our relationships, acknowledging that we're relationship creatures and that most of us are stuck in patterns mm-hmm. that don't serve us. Uh, this new narrative book, it'll be out in, in two years time. Will be all about relationships. Um, Again, all about the trauma bonding and the patterning and where it came from in our childhood. And then all about um, evolving into heart based or heart coherent, um, authentically Mm. connected relationships. Before that book, actually, next November, the hope is in terms of publication date, I will be putting out a workbook. So think about it as a bridge from how to do the work into this new. Relationship book. It's gonna to, going to be called "How to Meet Yourself," and it's all about mm. um, how to live in self observation, how to begin to become this conscious being that you and I have been talking about, visible to our patterns, our habits, the things that don't serve us, um, both in and out of relationships, so that we can consciously see the areas that we're stuck, and then of course, giving tools and how to live in that conscious space to begin to create change. So I'm super excited um and lit up about both of these projects i think that they're going to be incredible resources my hope is that they're incredible resources for the collective again the workbook being more of a manual practical application of mm-hmm. all of this journey of becoming a conscious creature and then allowing us to take that uh, those observations into our relationships
0: nicole Thank you so much. I know you're so busy and you carving out time to be on my podcast. Like I told this to Lolly when I interviewed her thinking 8 months ago, thinking that I would have you on my podcast. Like it's not even something that I could have even fathomed. And so I had never spoken into a microphone in terms of a podcast until 8 months ago. I didn't I'd never had an Instagram other than a personal Instagram and the growth has been insane and so just take this as like if you go on your own journey and you push past those those patterns like you can hang out with Nicole like it's pretty freaking cool I'd still just surprised so just thank you
1: <laughs> it's it's truly been an honor Molly and like I shared with you before we hit record on this um I want to acknowledge you in, in showing up and creating this space and creating this opportunity for our lives to intersect in this way um, because you did play a part in it the way you show up every day. I mean, very much like you, I was never on a camera. Actually, this part of me still doesn't love being on cameras or microphones. Same. Why do you so think I, can, I don't do any of my right? videos out? I just put so do the I audio. Could, I, yeah, I could share out. the same thing, you know, and being that testament and and of, of what can happen as you begin to. And of course, not everyone has to live their journey so publicly, Um, Though showing up for yourself in this new way, even if you don't feel ready, even if you don't know how, how I can't remember how many pictures we would post with me recording in bathrooms, me recording, you know, (laughs) anywhere I could Mm -hmm. not knowing what I was doing in many ways and still learning what I'm doing in many ways in terms of the business and our future and, and ultimately, you know, just starting. And so again, acknowledging you can be such an incredible inspiration and you don't know who you're um, shining your light for. So keep shining it. And I really truly appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with me today.
0: Thank you, Nicole. Thank you so much.
1: All right. You messy,
0: amazing, emotional, fabulous human beings doing this life thing. That is it for today's episode. I want to thank you so much for listening because out of all the millions, billions of podcasts in the world, you chose to listen to mine. And that means a lot to me. And if you listen this far, I know you never want to miss a new episode. So to make sure that doesn't happen, click follow in your podcast player of choice and you will be alerted every time I drop a new one. To help me grow and help the podcast reach as many people as possible, go ahead and leave an honest rating and review. Not only that, I love to hear your feedback, so please share it with me. I read every single review, and you just might hear it read out loud on the podcast. To connect with me directly, follow me on social media and keep up with all the new updates. You can find that all at backfromtheborderline.com. And as always, any articles, resources, or other helpful information you've heard today can be found in the description of this podcast episode, so don't forget to check out the show notes. And until we meet again, remember, life is a circle, a cycle, a process, separation, initiation, return.